This is Saving Grace, Living in Light of God's Love, a podcast ministry brought to you by Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of grace. Hello, I'm Carmen Pate, your host for today's podcast. I don't know about you, but in my darkest hours, I have found that turning to the Psalms and reading the Songs of David quickly changes my perspective on my circumstances. Whether you are fearful, doubtful, angry, sad, David has been there, and he wrote a song to tell about it. Over the next six weeks, we will have opportunity to hear powerful and insightful messages on various psalms that will speak to you and turn your heart to praise. Our speaker is the Reverend Mark Ray, Vice President of Community Development here at Grace and also the Executive Director of our Grace Center for Spiritual Development. Mark holds a Master of Biblical Studies from Dallas Theological Seminary and a Master of Divinity from Grace School of Theology. He has served churches as an associate pastor and as a lead pastor and has served as COO of a major evangelistic ministry. Let's listen now to Mark Ray's message based on Psalm 3, Now This is Music, from his series, Songs of Praise. I have an older brother. His name is Scott, three years my elder, which makes him really old. He is a professor of ethics at Talbot Seminary in California, and he's what I like to call the absent-minded professor. My brother is brilliant with his brain up here in the ethereal, but when it comes to the practical every day, he's not always with it to his own admission. So let me say on the first hand, because he may listen to this sermon, he's brilliant. (laughs) And then let me say, he's a little absent-minded. An example of that, he had come home from seminary one weekend when my parents were away, they asked him to house-sit. This was years ago, and they walked him through how they would shut down the house every evening, and they told him, okay, here's what we need you to do when you're sitting on the couch watching the game with our dog, whose name was Beamer, Ray Beam, that's why they nicknamed our dog Beamer. His name was Beamer, and when you get through watching the game, here's what you do with him. You ask him if he'd like to go out, he will bolt for the dog door that we have cut in the back door that goes out into the the backyard. He'll bolt for the door. While he's outside, you circle the house, turn off the lights, sit on the alarm. He'll bolt back in the door because he's really excited because he's going to get a little treat before he goes in, in his room. So do all that. And then there's a metal plate that goes on the dog door. You just put the metal plate down and then go to bed. That keeps any critters from coming in at night. You know where I'm going, don't you? So here comes the first night he's there, this brilliant professor... He's finished watching the game. Beamer, you want to go out? Beamer heads for the door, runs out the dog door. He goes around, turns off the lights, turns on the alarm, and puts the metal piece down in front of the dog door. As he walks down the hallway, he hears, wham! And he thinks, oh, no, I did it. I did it. He goes out, and he looks outside the, the window onto the porch, and the dog's doing this. 
This dog has run headlong into that dog door thinking it's wide open, and it has just knocked this dog, rocked him back. He's almost unconscious. And my brother lifts the dog door, and then the dog does this. And pokes his head through the door. For the next couple of days, as Scott was in the house, the dog, anytime the dog came to the dog door, he was just poking on it to make sure this dog didn't trust that dog door for his life. And it begs the question of the morning, what do you do when you run headlong into the dog door of life, right? Isn't that the question in front of you? What do you do when life rocks you back on your heels? You've hit it headlong and it stops you in your tracks. What do you do? What do you do when you find yourself in a circumstance in which there's no hope, no help, seemingly no way out? Well, I'm going to suggest we do what David did. I'm going to suggest we sing. Now, you may find that really strange, but my suggestion is that we sing. What David would do typically in those time periods is he would write down his experience in what are called the Psalms, literally translated songs of praise. What David would do is he would write a song, songs that were meant to be sung, songs that were universal in their thought process and their concept, songs that were sung in front of the temple, in front of the congregation. And we're going to look this morning at a very specific psalm in which David finds himself running headlong into the dog door of life. Let me give you a little bit of background. You'll find it in 2 Samuel coming up to chapter 15, and we're going to turn there in a minute. But here's the background on what David finds himself in. David had a son whose name was Absalom. He was the third son. And the scriptures define or describe Absalom this way, beautiful flowing hair, a gorgeous face, a regal countenance, and persuasive speech, so persuasive that he could manipulate people. And make no mistake, Absalom was a bad seed. And he manipulated people time and time and time again. Well, David is, is trying to mold him and shape him into what it would be the next king when David's time has come. And so he sends Absalom off to Jerusalem while David's away from the throne, sends him off to Jerusalem and says, I want you to go learn the politics of being a king. And he sends him there and he says, and I'm going to come follow you in a short time. David comes two years Later, Absalom in Jerusalem, unchecked for two years. Flowing hair, beautiful face, regal countenance, and persuasive tongue. And here's what happens. Absalom walks in, and people start coming to him because he's the king's son. People start coming to him with their problems. And they say, here's a problem, here's a problem, here's a problem. And Absalom says this, oh, if only I were king, I could help you. Oh, if only I had the authority and the power I could make things better for you. If only I was your ruler, I could answer that problem. And what Absalom starts to do is to turn the nation against David. Now, maybe it was because David was old. Maybe it was because David was absent for two years. Maybe it was because the Bathsheba incident was still floating around. But for whatever reason, the persuasiveness and the manipulation of Absalom, he turns the nation of Israel against its king. The entire nation turns against David. Then he goes after David's closest advisor, and he turns his closest advisor against him. Then he goes after his friends, and Absalom turns David's friends against him. Those friends become foes. And finally, he goes after David to kill him. Now, this is his third son, 
who's after him to kill him. You talk about the dog door of life coming right down on you. David comes back into Jerusalem and finds the nation against him, his closest advisor against him, his friends against him, and his own son coming after him to kill him. We pick up the story in 2 Samuel 15, and I'm just going to read a couple of these verses just to give you. This is 12 through 17, so you know where, where this is going. Starting at the latter half of verse 12, and the conspiracy grew strong for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. Now a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise, let us flee or we will not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, We are your servants, ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. Then the king went out with all his household after him. But the king left ten women concubines to keep the house. And the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. Here's David. The nation has turned against him. His closest advisor has turned against him. His friend has turned against him. And now his son is after him to kill him. So what does David do? He writes Psalm 3, and that's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to go to Psalm 3. You've got the historical situation. We're going to look at Psalm 3 very specifically. As David pens this psalm, this song of praise to God, he pens this psalm as his solution. We've looked at his situation. We're going to look at his solution this morning, and then we're going to look ultimately at David's song. What does his song say? What did it unfold that the nation needed to be singing about? Psalm 3. Now, the psalms are interesting in that there's a number of different types of psalms that are written. There would be a psalm of pilgrimage. That's one type of psalm that that extols the virtue of making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And the psalm is all about going up to the holy hill, going up to Zion, going up to Jerusalem. You see psalms that were specifically there about acknowledgement, that are acknowledging the wonder and the splendor of God. That's all they are, psalms about acknowledgement. But this particular psalm, the uh, the most frequent of the psalms that David wrote is called a lament psalm. A lament psalm. And what it is, a lament psalm breaks down into four pieces, four parts. The first part is the actual lament. This is the woe is me section of the psalm where David is laying out the problem. This is the lament. This is the dog door. This is the situation he finds himself in. So first he lays out the lament. After that comes a section which is called the confession of trust. This is where he confesses his trust in God. The third part of that is called the petition where he actually asks God to help him in his situation. And finally, there is the vow of praise, the section in which he extols the virtue of God. He praises God for who he is. So what you get in these four parts is you get literally David's solution to his situation. And to make it a little easier for us to remember, I've titled all of these with the letter A. So we're going to talk about his assessing the situation, acknowledging who God is, asking for his help, in announcing his praise. That's where we're going in this psalm. So you're going to find these broken down to what he specifically says about this. And out of this, we're going to see the psalm that David sings to God. Psalm 3, a beautiful psalm. It starts this way in a a thing that's called the superscription. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, the superscription in most psalms either gives instruction on why the psalm was written or it gives instructions to Chris Craig. It gives instructions to the choir director. 
He gives instructions to the guy who's going to lead the congregation in music. Look at Psalm 4, if you're there. To the chief musician with stringed instruments. David is giving him, this is how the song needs to be sung. This is how it needs to be done. Well, in this particular psalm, Psalm 3, he's laying out for, for the congregation the reason, the circumstance behind it. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. We're going to launch first into verses 1 and 2, which is the, this is the lament side of this. this, is the woe is me, this is where he assesses his situation. Listen to what he says. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. These opening two verses, David gives us the lament. He gives us this assessment of his situation. And make no mistake about this. When he assesses this situation, this is not Pollyanna time. This is not making light of his circumstance. What David is giving us is a gut-wrenching, heartfelt, brutally honest look at his situation. Notice the first word of the psalm. It is Lord. So within the context of this, he's addressing God and he's giving God, he's talking to God and giving him this assessment of his circumstance. And here's what he says. He says, first, my troubles, those who trouble me have increased around me. No kidding. The entire nation of Israel has turned against him. He's come back to Jerusalem and the entire nation is against him. Many are they who rise up against me, my wisest counsel, my best friends, my friends who are now my foes. And many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. If the one who is now king, if Absalom, your son, is after you, God can't help you in this thing at all. David's situation looks unbelievably bleak. His circumstance looks huge. It looks incredibly menacing. And as he gives this honestly brutal assessment of his situation, it looks like there's no way that God can help him at all. There's a story of the legendary football coach, Newt Rockney when he was coaching Notre Dame. I love this story. They were getting ready to play USC, the University of Southern California, and in this particular season, USC was the dominant force in college football. Notre Dame was outgunned, outmatched, outsized, outstrength. They were outspeeded. This, this USC team had it all. And Rockney was looking for a way to be able to defeat USC. And then he had an idea. He went to all throughout South Bend, Indiana, where Notre Dame is stationed. He went all throughout South Bend, and he found the largest, meanest-looking guys he could find. The minimum requirement, they had to be six foot five inches tall and 300 pounds. These were beasts. These were monsters. And in that day of college football, you didn't have guys this size. He went out and found 100 of them, brought them into the Notre Dame locker room, put shoulder pads on them, a helmet, and a Notre Dame jersey on them. And when the pregame warm-up happened, they opened the doors underneath the stadium, and he marched out these hundred guys, one after another, after another, after another, after another, after these six foot five, three hundred pound guys, a hundred of them marched out from underground and came out and, and stood on the entire sideline. The entire USC team stopped, jaws dropped as they watched one after another after another, these six foot five, 300 pound guys running out onto the field. It felt like an earthquake. The USC coach called his team around him. He said, guys, 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 remember, they can only put 11 guys on the field at a time. But the damage was done. Notre Dame rolled over USC that day. And here's the amazing thing. Not one of those 100 guys ever stepped on the field and played a down. Not 
won. You see, what the USC team did was they saw their enemy. That's all they saw. What what, what David does in this opening segment of his lament is he says, here's a brutal assessment of my situation, Lord. David, though David had a huge problem, his focus was not on the problem, his focus was on the Lord. So in his assessment, he doesn't leave God out of the assessment. He's looking at this thing and he's saying, God, here's my problem. Lord, here's what's going on. It looks desperate, but you're in the middle of it. The first thing David does is he assesses his situation. The second thing he does is he acknowledges God for who he is, the character of God for who he is. This is called the confession of trust. Listen to it. This is verses 3 through 6. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory in the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. There's an amazing shift that happens in this next series of verses. It starts with this. David says, here's the assessment. The situation looks bad. And then he says, but, there's that transition statement, but you, O Lord, are, period. You could put a period right there, and this psalm would be complete, right? But you, O Lord, are. You cover, all the, you cover all the gaps. You cover all the bases. You're it. But he goes on, and he says, you, O Lord, are a shield for me. That's the first thing he says. You're a shield for me. Now, think about David. Was David a passive king or a warrior king? He'd be, he, was a, he was a veteran of battle, right? And as a veteran of battle, what do you think was his first line of defense? You can say it. It's in the text. His shield, right? His shield went before him. It, it protected him from arrows and spears. It defended him in front. It was the first line of defense out in front of him. His shield was the thing that hit him. It protected him. It guarded him. It delivered him. He looks at this and he says, you, O Lord, are a shield for me. And if there was anybody in history who would know what a shield looked like and what it did, it was David. And so the first thing he says is, God, you are a shield. The first characteristic he gives to God in acknowledging him is, you are my shield. Then he says, you're my glory. You're the one that, that I glorify, and you're the one that I glory. You're the one that I stand in the midst of. And he says, then you're the one who lifts up my head. Literally, you're the one who restores my dignity. God, this is who you are. You're my shield, my glory, and the one who restores my dignity. Because let me tell you, when you get in the middle of the dog door, your dignity can go right out the window. So you're my shield, my glory. And the one who restores my dignity. Kay Arthur tells the story of her husband's best friend who was a hunter. Went out behind his house and he was hunting in the fields one night. Came back at, da- at dusk, his rifle in the crook of his arm. And as he's walking back to the house, out of the thicket comes this brown fur just blasting through the underbrush. It circles around his feet and stops right behind him. And he looks down and it's a cottontail rabbit. We've seen a few of those around here, right? It's a cottontail rabbit, and this one's that. He said it's interesting. It was, it was fascinating because cottontail rabbits are deathly afraid of people, so they rarely come out. But this one came down, landed behind him, and it's panting, and it just absolutely drops at the back of his feet. And he's thinking, what have I, what, what's going on here? And then about 50 yards up, the brush breaks again, and a weasel comes right out in the middle of the, of the path. And this weasel is looking around for the rabbit at zero. It's right in on the rabbit behind his feet, those red eyes gleaming at him. Well, the the hunter knows he stepped into a life-and-death situation. 
And he looks at the rabbit behind his feet. He looks out at the weasel and takes his gun, and he fires right in front of the weasel. The bullet hits the ground, dust flies up, the weasel takes off and runs. He looks back down at the rabbit, and the rabbit now comes around and lays down on his feet. And he gets down, and he looks at the rabbit, and he says, It's okay. He's gone. You're safe. He's not going to bother you. You're okay. Who do we turn to when our energy is gone? Who do we turn to when the things of life like worry and guilt plague us? Who do we turn to to be our shield? David says, God, you're my shield. You're my glory and the one who lifts me up. Well, now he moves and he addresses the congregation. He's now been talking to the Lord. That's who you are, Lord. Now he looks at the congregation. He says, I cried to the Lord with my voice, verse 4, and he heard me from his holy hill. He's looking at the congregation. He says, take this to the bank. When you cry, God hears. When you pray, God hears. And if this is the God of the universe who can control it all, who's in control of it all, what better person to hear than God? When you cry, God heals. And he continues from there and he says this, the most incredible two verses, I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord's sustainment. Think about this for a minute. When you're in the middle of an incredibly stressful situation, what's the first thing that leaves you? Sleep, right? Sleep's gone. I remember a time when I was very early in business. I was about three years into business, right out of college. And my wife and I had moved to Dallas, and I was handling the largest account in the history of our company. We were doing $9 million. Some of you know the name Fina Oil and Chemical. Well, Fina was my account out of Dallas, and I was handling all of their graphics on all their service stations across the nation. And we were doing a new prototype for them. I was doing $9 million a year with them, and it was my only account. Now, in sales, it's, it's the kiss of death to only have one account. I'm just here to tell you. Because if that account goes, you've got nothing. You need a broad base underneath you. So if an account leaves you, you've got something to back you up. But I had worked really hard to get this account under my belt. And it was 4th of July, 27 years ago. 4th of July, 20, it's really apropos that we're talking about this today. 4th of July, 27 years ago. And we were doing a new prototype of a new graphic for them in Dallas, and it was going horribly. And I was absolutely convinced that if this prototype didn't go well, they were going to pull the account from me. Now, what did that mean to me? That was my source of income. With the income gone, I had no way to support my family, my wife, my house. Everything was gone. And I remember we'd come down from Dallas to Houston to go to a company party to celebrate 4th of July. And that night, I went to bed. This is where I was. I went to bed, and the stress was so great. I hadn't slept for four or five nights. The stress was so great, I couldn't even swallow. It was that great, and I went to bed that night, right? Went to bed that night, and I prayed very specifically, Lord, take me tonight, because it would be better for you to take me and let my kids and my wife have my insurance money than it would for me to lose it all. So just take me tonight. They'll be taken care of. Just take me tonight. That's how messed up I was in my head about who God is. When stress gets there, look at what David says God does. I laid down and I slept. 
And he sustained me through the night. I awoke for the Lord had sustained me all through the night. God had taken care of it. Even down to the smallest detail of giving me rest so that when I wake up in the morning, I'm refreshed and I can approach this problem with a whole new perspective. God's perspective, not mine. So the second thing David says is, not only are you my shield, but you're my sustainer. And he sustained him through the night. Now look at the shift. Verse 6, I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me all around. I won't be afraid of 10,000 people. Verse 1, he says, they've increased. My troubles have increased around me. Many are they who rise up against me. Now here in verse 6, I won't be afraid of 10,000 people. You see what rest and sustaining does? David all of a sudden has a completely different outlook on his situation. A new perspective. And he comes to that with God's perspective, and he says, fear's gone. So the second thing that David does is he assesses his situation, and he acknowledges the character of God, this confession of trust. He trusts in the Lord, and look what happens. All of a sudden, his issues are small, and he has no fear. This is where David is ta- that God has taken David. So now we move in this lament psalm out of the assessment and the acknowledgement. And we're going to move into what's called the petition. This is the place that he asks God to help. And look at this. I want you to, this is really interesting. I want you to see how many verses David uses to ask God for help. Here's here's David's ask for help. Verse 7, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. That's it. Look at the difference between what David says in terms of the ask and the number of verses that he has in the acknowledgement. His ask is how many verses? Half of one verse. His acknowledgement of God is how many verses? Four. Do you see the proportion? What do I typically do? When I'm in a a tough situation, I ask God over and over again, over and over again, God save me. God, are you listening to me? God save me. Just hear me. Save me. What does David do? He spends the majority of the time acknowledging who God is, his confession of trust in the God of the universe. Why? Because that builds faith. And yet if I ask over and over again, it's almost like I'm saying to God, you're not hearing me, God. You haven't saved me yet, God. You're not there, God. And yet the confession that David gives us over and over again is that God's there, He hears you. He sustains you, even down to the smallest detail detail of giving you sleep. David asked God very simply, rise up and save me. That's it. That's all he asks. Story is told of a fireman who is teaching a kindergarten class about what you do in terms of a fire. And he says, now, the first thing you do is if, if, it's, if you come up to a door in a house that's on fire and you touch the door and the door is hot, then you drop to your knees. Do you know why you drop to your knees in the class? Nobody's saying anything. He says, let me ask you again. Do you know why you drop to your knees after you touch the door and it's hot and you drop to your knees? Why do you drop to your knees? The little boy in the back goes, I know. Why do you drop to your knees? He said, I dropped to my knees to pray to God and ask him to help me out of this mess. That's why I dropped to my knees. Right? What does David do? He drops to his knees and simply asks God. First, he assesses his situation with God in the middle of it. Second, he acknowledges the God of the universe, the characteristics of God that he lands on, that he holds on to. And third, he simply asks God for his help. Finally, the last part of the lament psalm, 
is this valve of praise. This is the announcement of the praise of God. Listen to what he says. The latter part of verse 7, For you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Now, what in the world is he talking about here? You've struck my enemies on the cheekbone. You've broken the teeth of the ungodly. What is he talking about here? Well, David's using this metaphorical language to describe to us the beast of his problem. That this, this problem that he's got is a monster. And it's a monster who has incredible power and terror in its jaws and its teeth. But what he says is, God, you're the one who has struck the jawbone. You're the one who has broken the teeth. Literally, you're the one who has gone directly to the source of the power, directly to the source of the terror, and you've destroyed it as only God can. Now, look at it very simply. He says, you have struck all my enemies. You have broken the teeth. Is that past tense, present tense, future tense? Past, right? 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 Past tense. What David describes, and this is him pinning this, this hasn't happened yet. What David describes here is such confidence in the Lord that he's going to deliver him that he writes it in the, in the past tense. It's already happened. He's already, taken, he's already taken care of it. God has already done the work. God, you've already struck them. You've already taken the power from them. You've already removed the terror from them. I'm so confident that you will do this. I'm going to write it in such a way that you've already done it. Is that where my confidence is in God? Do I have that kind of confidence in God, that kind of confession of my trust in him, that kind of acknowledgement of who he is that I can say, God, I trust you so much that you've already done it? That's where David is. You've struck all my enemies on the cheekbone, and you have already broken the teeth of the ungodly. Finally, he comes back and he talks to the nation again, and he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. This is a great little phrase here, because this is not spiritual salvation, This is literally deliverance. This is literally salvation from his situation. And our our Hebrew scholar here, Matt Montgomery, said, actually, that, that Hebrew word there gives us a hint of Yeshua, gives us a hint of Jesus, the Messiah, that God is our Savior. That's what he puts in place here, that that my, my Savior, my salvation, my deliverance belongs to God. It's him who does it, him and him alone. It's, he's the one that does it. He is the one who is my deliverer, my salvation. He is the one who is my Savior. And then he says this. He concludes with this. Your blessing is upon your people. This is where your blessing is. And it rests heavily on the nation. Rests heavily on your people. And being our Savior is a blessing. So what David gives us here in this lament psalm very simply is a format. It's a formula for you and me. It's a way to be able to work through these kind of huge issues in our life. And first he says, assess it very distinctly, very honestly, assess it with God in the middle of it. Then he says, acknowledge God. Acknowledge the character of God in your life. Those things that make a difference in your life that are the character of God. Third, he says, ask. Very simply, make your request. God knows it. He's already there. Ask him. And finally, they say, he says, announce his praise. Give him praise for who he is and what he's done in your life. That's, that's Psalm 3. That's what he lays out for us. That's what he tells us to walk through. And finally, what he says to us is, this is my song. And I love this. David leaves us with this, which is his song. I love the fact that Vince made reference to it earlier. But this is David's song to us. First, he says, Yahweh is my shield. Is it your shield? 
Yahweh is my shield. He's the one that goes in front. He's the one, he's the one who stands in front and takes all the slings, all the arrows, all the spears. He hides me. He gives me refuge. He protects me. Yahweh is my shield. This is a recurring theme for David. He says it in Psalm 5, Psalm 18, Psalm 28, Psalm 33, 84, 91, 115, 119, 144. David says this over and over again. You are my shield. Second, he said, Yahweh is my sustainer. He's the one that holds me up, that gives me rest, that refreshes me through the night so that when I wake up in the morning, I can approach this situation with God's perspective, not mine. He is my sustainer. Third, he says that Yahweh is my savior, my deliverer. He is the one who is who brings that deliverance. The actual little translation of that word deliverance there is he gives me room to breathe. Isn't that a great statement? Yahweh gives me room to breathe. And that room to breathe is a blessing. Psalm 3. What do you do when the dog door is right in front of you and you hit it head on? You assess, acknowledge, Ask and announce. I want to tell you a quick story to conclude here. It's the story of a woman called Renee Bondi. Renee Bondi, back in 1988, was a choral high school teacher. She'd been teaching at San Clemente High School for 10 years. Renee Bondi had come to the Orange County Convention Center because this is where the uh, contemporary arts, the choral arts, were putting on their major competition of the year. And her class from Santa Clemente High School was coming in, and they were going to perform Brahms. It was an incredible, incredibly difficult selection. And this was to be Renee's swan song because her fiancé, Don, lived in Denver. And after this year, which this competition was the culmination of the year, after this year she was getting on an airplane and going to be with her fiancé to marry him and to live in Denver. So all during the course of the year, she's challenged them, her class, with this Brahms selection, a very difficult selection. And they moaned, and they whined, and they complained. And she said, no, wait a minute. If you'll trust me, this can be the greatest competition we've ever had. So they dug in. They practiced. They rehearsed. They did everything they could. And they took first place. At this competition, they took first place in all of California for this choral competition on this very difficult Brahms piece. And she was named Choral Teacher of the Year. It was a great end to her year. She went home that night, was sitting on the edge of her bed, putting her socks on, getting ready to climb under the covers. She slipped off the bed and cracked her head on the floor. When she woke up, she said, I found my head in the closet, my feet sitting out of the closet, and I had no idea how I'd gotten there. She said, I got up to move, and I turned, and I heard crack, and this searing pain shot through my body. She said, I didn't know what had happened, so I turned to the other side, and crack, excruciating pain flowed through the other part of my body. She cried out for help, and a roommate came upstairs and found her just like she had said in in the closet with her head in the closet, her feet out, not able to move. The last thing she remembered was the paramedics arriving and putting her on the, the gurney and whisking her away into the ambulance. When she awoke several hours later, the doctor came in and gave her the news. He said, Renee, you've broken your neck. You're going to be a quadriplegic. You will not walk. You will not use your hands, your feet, your legs, your arms ever again. And you'll never be able to sing again. Well, this was an absolutely crushing blow 
You talk about your dog door coming down. (laughs) She hit it head on. And here was the situation. She knew she couldn't continue with teaching, and she said, the worst of it was, I knew that I was no longer the person that my fiancé, Don, would ever want to marry. Why would I want to saddle him with a quadriplegic? I want to give you Renee's own words. This was from 1998. She said, my life was over. It was over. God, I whined, this is not what I had in mind for my life. I can't do it. Why couldn't you have given me an easier path? And then I heard this still small voice say, you may not always get to choose the songs, but if you put your trust in me, you're going to make beautiful music. Did I have the same faith I required of my students? My answer was, yes, Lord, I will trust you. And the first song he gave me was incredibly precious. My beloved Don insisted on becoming my husband. He strengthened the resolve I had to teach again, and the fight I might not have been able to make for myself became easy when I thought of God, God, Don, and my future students. I even vowed to sing again. It's been nine years since then, and God has been good. The teaching I've done hasn't been at school, but at church, where I've been able to form three youth choirs. I've made a recording of songs for people who need courage, strength, and hope like I did. I've been able to give concerts where I sing and tell my story to prisoners, teenagers, church, and women's groups alike. No, my life is not at all what I planned. But every now and then, I see the sweet harmonies and the sweeping cascades of God's arpeggios all around me, and I think this. This is music. What's your song? You have been listening to Mark Ray. We hope you found the psalmist David's perspective on the harsh realities of life to be helpful. And a reminder that in those trials, we can still sing praises to God, our shield, sustainer, and our Savior. You may have friends and family who would be encouraged by this series on the songs of praise. Sharing our podcast is a perfect way to do so. In addition, we're making available to you a free study guide of the series that is perfect for personal or small group studies. Download your free copy today at gsot.edu forward slash songs. That's gsot.edu forward slash songs. Aren't you glad you tuned in today? Always remember, the love of Christ can never be earned and can never be lost. You have been listening to Saving Grace, a podcast ministry of Grace School of Theology. For more information, visit gsot.edu slash savinggrace. Views expressed on this podcast may not always be the views of Grace School of Theology or its leadership. 